Coming to you from New York City, it's the Flyers Club Podcast. Established in 1904, the Friars Club is the birthplace of the celebrity roast and has counted the likes of Frank Sinatra, Jimmy Fallon, Billy Crystal, Barbara Streisand, and Johnny Carson among its members. So come on in for a drink and some laughs with your host, Joe Sibilia. Hello and welcome to the Friars Club podcast. This is your host, Joe Sibilia, and today I have the distinct pleasure of talking with the host of the Netflix series, Somebody Feed Phil, and he's the creator writer and executive producer of the iconic sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond and his name is Philip Rosenthal. Phil, hello. what a delight to be talking to you today. How are you? My pleasure, fellow Hofstra alumni. I know. I, I, uh, I'm i thrilled to speak with you because your name is so frequently mentioned. Your picture's on the wall at Hofstra. Somehow my picture made it on the wall, although I'm in a group of people. It's not quite as cool, but it is uh, a delight to be speaking with somebody. Uh, no group would have me. That's why I'm alone. <laughs> I I, I find that highly doubtful. Well, the Friars Club is more than happy to have you. And let me ask you, Phil, how did your association with the Friars first begin? Oh, well, here's what's funny. I My high school friend was a guy named Alan Kirschenbaum. Yeah, Freddie Roman's son. That's it. You know your history. Oh, yes. Freddie was a great Catskills comedian. In fact, maybe some of you have heard of the Broadway show Catskills on Broadway. He was the founder of that. He was, uh, you know, he's a, a Catskills legend. A lot of people from the Catskills, the comedians, lived in the town I grew up in, just by chance, New City, New York, Rockland County, which is a half an hour north of New York City. Right. And I was friends with Alan, and Alan would take me to the Catskills to watch his dad. This is when I'm like 13, 14 years old. Yeah. Uh, to watch his dad, and we could even, Freddie let us contribute a little bit to the to the act by saying, "Here's here are the soap operas, these are the uh, digests of what happened in the soap operas. Can you pick out a few for me? They were kids. Pick out a few that sound good and I'll make fun of them on stage. And we <laughs> we sat in the audience and we couldn't believe that a professional comedian in front of, you know, hundreds of people would do the material that we helped with. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Very exciting. My, my favorite Freddie Roman line, though, is when my family saw my act they changed their name to Kirschenbaum. <laughs> that's a great line right that's a good one and then he of course was uh what was his title at the friars he was the it. dean for many many years dean, that's with what the friars. I yeah so for many years right I think he was the longest serving dean in the history of the club. I mean, they had a certain term limit for the dean, and he long exceeded that term limit. I don't quite remember what the exact amount of time that the dean would serve was, but he they made an exception for Freddie. He was that beloved and that integral in the Friars in New York. So, like, I literally had a family connection. So I had to be part of it. And then my wife, you know, knew how much I loved the roasts and everything. And for my 40th birthday, we were still working on Raymond, she had a roast for me at the L.A. Friars. Uh, so now, who was on the dais for your 40th birthday roast? I was going to ask you about this. Ray Romano, of course. Alan Kirschenbaum was the dean of the roast. Oh, that's uh, great. My father. <laughs> my, <laughs> my wife hired Red Buttons. And How much did he charge? <laughs> I think five grand. Uh, that's a pretty good deal for Red Buttons. Uh, absolutely worth it. And then my father got up a few speakers later 
And he was pretty nervous because there were professional comedians on board. Lou Schneider, Steve Scrovan, you know, there were there were who were writers on Raymond, and, of course. And Ray. Yeah. All all not just writers on Raymond, but professional comedians. Right. Right. And, and hysterical and other comedy writers. Everyone else was in comedy. And my dad gets up like you could seem visibly uh, shaking a little bit and a little hyperventilating. Right. Right. And he goes, oh, my God, red buttons. He says, I, I think I saw him 40 years ago at the Tamawak Lodge. <laughs> Same jokes. <laughs> and he killed. The room erupted. It was gigantic. He roasted red buttons. <laughs> That's amazing. Amazing. And uh, But so your I'm father. I'll always be very proud of my dad for that. Well, your father, if I'm not mistaken, didn't he have a little yes. bit of performance experience? Didn't he work up in the Catskills for a little while? But, uh, completely in an amateur way. Like if he was a if he was a, a counselor, you know, they would let him tumble a little bit at the pool. And for but those who don't know, it. what does that phrase mean? Tumble means make go around the pool and tell jokes or make people laugh or, or do some shtick. Mel Brooks was probably the most famous person to ever do that. Oh, of course. Right. So that was fantastic. And my he did an amateur night in New Jersey one night and a girl came in on another date. And she said, I, I think I like the, that funny boy who's on stage. And that was my mother. Oh, how about that? So, so comedy I brought your parents say, together. If my dad was not funny that night, I'm not here. <laughs> so we have comedy to thank for your existence. That's right. And comedy is a lot to thank you for, Phil. Yes. That's that's oh. for, that's for darn sure. I owe my life to laughs. That, yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. Now... I've seen photos of Ray at the Friars Club in New York. Were you the person who would have brought him into the Friars in New York? I think he could have gotten in without me. But but uh, did we ever go together? Yeah, probably. Probably. But I remember going with Freddie. I remember sitting with uh, Buddy Hackett and, uh, oh, my God, uh, so many. Uh, this, uh, like Milton Berle I met there and... and uh, I met everybody. Pat Cooper. I, I, it was it was an amazing, amazing place, and such a beautiful building. Just a huge uh, contribution, not just to the world of comedy, but to New York itself, as no. as a work of art. This building. How would you compare and contrast the Friars Club in New York and the one in California? The one in California didn't have nearly the uh, spirit or even the aesthetics and old world charm that that building has in New York. It was a, you know, a building maybe from the 70s, so it didn't have the history of the building. It looked like maybe a little bit of a retirement home. <laughs> and in a sense, it was. <laughs> but it, it, it's still any room that these great comedians gathered in, that's the Friars Club. So it's not... It's not the building so much as the people in it. Although I have to say, in New York, that building, you can feel the weight of history in the, in the detail of the interior design, of the architecture itself, of the wood crafting around the moldings and stuff. Oh, and this was where Frank Sinatra played pool. And this is, you know, it just you can't buy that history. You can't just 
have it be somewhere else when it's not. I know that the Friars Club was not always in that building, but it's just been there for so long. I mean, they've been in that building, I think, since about 1957. And uh, for the Friars to be anywhere else almost seems unreal, unthinkable. It's it's a monument uh, to all that history. What was the building before? They were in multiple locations, and probably three or four. I mean, at first they started congregating at restaurants and things like that. This was when it was just a few press agents that would get together and a kibitz and a commiserate about uh, show business. And then later they had a couple of uh, monasteries as they call them. And then finally in uh, the 50s they were able to uh, secure the location that they're in now, the uh, the Erdman uh, house I believe. I think his name was Martin Erdman who lived there. And, uh, and was it a house? It, it was, was somebody's, it was somebody's home. Yeah, it was. It was somebody's private residence. So and then the... That f- feeling. That's what's so great. Like somebody's old mansion. Oh yeah, it, exactly. And then, and then the rumor is that apparently they had talks about the Manhattan Project in there. See, now that would have been a great scene in Oppenheimer. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They, they right? could have they could have filmed in the building for Oppenheimer <laughs> with Milton Berle coming in. Going, yeah, exactly. Hurry up, boys! I need the room. <laughs> I've got I've got gin rummy at two. I can bomb on my own. I don't need you guys. <laughs> exactly. I know you've worked with a lot of the Friars over the years, and I had read somewhere. Did you work on a a project with Jerry Lewis, a, a script that you were trying to get off the ground? So, here's what's funny. Alan Kirschbaum and I wrote a screenplay. It was the first screenplay I ever wrote, and I wasn't even a writer when I wrote it. In other words, I was just a comedic actor in New York and I couldn't rub two sticks together. It was just, it was crazy. Uh, actually, that's not the right expression. It's two nickels. I couldn't find <laughs> two, two nickels, nickels to rub yeah. together. Two sticks, I, yes, I couldn't do that either. I couldn't make a fire, <laughs> life depended on it. So, so not only poor, but inept. <laughs> and then he shows up at my apartment one day with a word processor. This is the precursor to the uh, computer. Right. The word processor. Before you were born, son. <laughs> and uh, this was 19, I want to say, 87. And he says, we're going to write a screenplay. I said, I don't know anything about it. He goes, well, I'm a writer. I don't like the sitcom that I'm working on for somebody else. I just want to do my own thing. And you're funny, so let's just write a screenplay. What are we going to write about? Let's write it about a suburban uh, detective, we decide, who lives in our town where we grew up. And let's write, who should we write it for? Alan Arkin, he's our favorite actor, okay? So we write this thing, it's called Shulman, named after a guy who lived up the street from me because we like that name, Millard Shulman. And we write it for Alan Arkin and we sell the screenplay to HBO. Like that, it was like, it's unheard of. Oh, wow. Now, it never got made, and here's why. We hand it in, they say, we love this, who do you see as the lead? And we said, we wrote it for Alan Arkin. And they said, Alan Arkin doesn't open a movie and they shut it down. Oh, wow. That's it. They said, no one else. We said, I'm sure there's other people, but Alan Arkin, this is what, and they, because we said that name, they said, no. (laughs) Now we got to keep the money for selling it, but it never got made. A year later, we hear that someone has read the screenplay and would like to do it. Would we take a meeting with Jerry Lewis? Now, whether you like Jerry Lewis, don't like Jerry Lewis, I think it's fair to say if you look in the dictionary for opposite of Alan Arkin, <laughs> Jerry Lewis. Jerry. Yes. <laughs> but here it is now, 1989, I guess it was. Do you take the meeting? Of course you take the meeting. Even if you don't want Jerry Lewis to do the movie, I think you take a meeting with Jerry Lewis. So we did. And that meeting was surreal. 
because he was very Jerry Lewis. Oh, boy. <laughs> he was, uh, I think it's fair to say also that he could be pompous. He could also be insanely silly, which is a riot when you're sitting right in front of him. Right. Uh, and then he gets very theoretical. Uh, he said to us, now, I, I could get this financed in a second, you know. Uh, I said, really? He goes, oh, yeah. I mean, especially if I just go to France, because, you know, Paris, that's my room. <laughs> that's my room. And he goes, and I see this as uh, I see this as more of a Jerry three. And I'm like, what, what does that mean? And he goes, well, Jerry one, let's say the character was a waiter. I'm like, all right, it's not a waiter, but keep going. <laughs> Jerry one and he gets up. And he throws a napkin over his arm at, at lunch. And he, he says, may I help level? And he knocks my glass over and he knocks a chair over. He's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Then he goes, that's Jerry one. He goes, Jerry three is more like this. And he resets the glass and he resets the chair and he places the napkin over his arm. He goes, may I help you? Oh, forgive me. And he knocks the glass over slowly. And then he knocks his chair over slowly. Excuse me. I'm so sorry. That's like this. That's Jerry three. I never realized there's so many that's, nuances. <laughs> that's more like this character. And all I could think was, I'm guessing Jerry two is a speed somewhere between one and three. <laughs> so I guess, I guess it never happened with Jerry Lewis then. <laughs> oh no, no. We never heard about money. And even if we did hear about money, I think we would have said that that's okay. <laughs> it would have passed. But at least but you had that meeting. Like, someone would come in with dessert and he would go, cookie, I love a cookie. <laughs> I like your Jerry Lewis. It's good. Uh, uh, listen, I have firsthand experience. <laughs> exactly. Another person you had firsthand experience with was the late, great Johnny Carson. I know you had lunch with him in sure. his retirement years. And did you not suggest that a charity roast be held in his honor? That's, that's true. There's another connection that could have been made at the Friars Club. But he uh, he had seen this video I did with President Clinton uh, for the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and he asked a mutual friend, I love that video. Can you get me the video? And our friend said, how would you like to have lunch with the guy who made it? And Johnny said, yeah. Now, he'd been off the air for eight years, so nobody had seen him for eight years. So this would have been 2000? That's right, 2000. And uh, I was I was going insane. I mean, because I worked, even though I worked with Bill Clinton, the president of the United States at the time, this was way bigger to me. This was Johnny, because when you think about it, there have been quite a few presidents. There's only one Johnny Carson. Right. So, so I was like over the moon, but as big as it was for me, I knew it would be even bigger for another guy. And I asked, I don't know where I got the chutzpah to ask, could I bring a guest? And I brought Ray Romano. Oh, that's very, that's very nice of you. He had and been he on had, the Tonight Show once, I think, with Johnny. He had, uh, but that's not what made his career. What made his career was getting on Letterman a few years later. Right. And uh, that's where I saw him. That's where we got Letterman said there should be a show for this guy. You know, that's where it all took off. But he couldn't. I mean, he couldn't believe that he was getting to meet basically God, you know, <laughs> yeah. 
And we're sitting there and we're at Shotzi's on Main, uh, uh, where his office was uh, in Santa Monica. His office was above it. Arnold Schwarzenegger owned that restaurant, Shotzi's on Main. Right. And we sat for two hours with him. And he was so generous with his time and so wonderful to talk to. And every time Ray and I would, we turned into, uh, remember the, the Chris Farley character? Oh, when he would do the talk show? Yeah, the Chris Farley show. That was basically us, because we were just in awe. And then I had the idea. I felt comfortable enough to broach this idea with him. Would you ever come back for any reason? And he said, no. I said, even for a charity thing? He goes, nope. I said, he goes, what what, do you have in mind? And I said, what about a roast live? It could be on HBO. It could be or carried by everyone in the world, you know, or, and we could raise more money for charity than any other event in history, I think, because what comedian would not do it? Right. Every giant star in the world would be there to do it because they all owe him. And they love him. <laughs> but he said, no, he didn't. He, when he was done, he was done. He was like Greta Garbo. I'm sure he got that offer every day. But he was, you know, he had real integrity and real, you know, sense of when to get off. Did he seem content and healthy when you were with him? Because I've heard conflicting reports about Johnny at that age. He looked like he just came from tennis. He looked fantastic. He had a nice tan. He had a tiny bit of the old, little old scratchy voice, a little bit. But that went away over the two hours as he got warmed up, you know? Right. That's that's amazing. It was, it was an absolute joy. I'll never forget it. When I came home, I wrote down every moment I could remember in my little journal, and I didn't even do that with the president of the United States. That's that's incredible, and it's great you wrote that down. That's that's a, a smart move. I wish I, I did it. that more often. I have to find it again. Talking about Johnny, and you had mentioned uh, how Ray got to start on David Letterman. Uh, David Letterman uh, was uh, one of the people who owned uh, the show that uh, you created. Absolutely. The show wouldn't exist without Letterman because Letterman had a production deal with CBS. And when Ray did his six minutes on there, Letterman said, let's sign that guy. Let's make a show for that guy. And they set about looking for someone to create the show for Ray. So Ray met with a bunch of writers and I got lucky. How involved uh, was David Letterman in the production of Everybody Loves Raymond? Not one bit. Oh, that's that, that's sad in one sense, great in another sense. You would Not think one bit. I had one meeting with him, which I thought was a formality, but it was really my audition <laughs> in his office after he did the after his nightly show was over. It was quite intimidating. He gave me this word of encouragement. He said, "Just don't embarrass us." <laughs> that, that must make you that's feel what good. I tell my kids when I drop them off at school every morning don't embarrass you that's yes. great and then you know that meeting was maybe 15-20 minutes and, and after that I spoke to him for the nine years that we were on a grand total of five minutes and that was not all one phone call oh, wow that's crazy I did, I did call him the week he was going off the air just to say thank you. And you know, he called me right back. I mean, probably the biggest and busiest week of his life. And he called back. That was, that was meant a lot to me. That's incredible. I did get to speak to him then. And he was so kind and I've met him 
since and had lovely, I think he's actually gotten mellower and nicer as his beard has grown. <laughs> My The few interactions I've had with him, he's yes. uh, always hilarious. And uh, and I, I think yes. you're right about that. I, I think he's become a far more open person in and, the years since he left television. And fatherhood, certainly. Dad too. That, that has an effect on a person. I'm sure it does. Uh, this isn't somebody who necessarily was involved with the Friars Club, but somebody I want to ask you about nonetheless, because I was so saddened when I heard uh, the news that uh, one of my favorite actors and comedians, Paul Rubens, uh, passed away. And I was surprised to find out just how close Show the two something. of you were. Hold on. Let's see if you can see that. Oh, sure. see oh that? look at that. You have the Pee-wee's Big Adventure poster on your wall. Can you see, can you see the... That's awesome. I love that. Look at can that. And he signed it to you. Yes. That's what did he what did he inscribe on the poster? Uh, hi Rosenthal's three exclamation marks. Your pal Pee Wee Herman. That's amazing. You gotta, you gotta love that, right? Oh, I please, I'd be cherishing that forever. How, I cherish how, it forever. I've got stuff. I've got. Listen, I was a huge fan before I ever met the guy. Well, you were involved with the Groundlings, right? Early on. Oh yeah, I probably took Groundlings classes because of him. Uh, Having not met him at all, just oh, who who was in the Groundlings? Paul Rubens. I'm going. Yeah, <laughs> and I took those classes in New York. Probably the best class is not to take anything away from Hofstra. Probably the most valuable class I ever took, because not only did it help you with uh, you know being on stage, it helped you writing too. You had to when you're when you're uh, doing improvisation like that, you have to make a choice quickly and commit to it really hard, and yeah. that's writing. That's what you should do in writing. You make a big choice, and then you go as hard as you can in that direction. Who, who was in the Groundlings when you were there? Alan Kirchman. Uh My wife took uh, Groundlings, too. Uh, I had met her just before that. doing that. Uh, anyone else that I know that you would know? I don't think so. I only took class. I was never in the... Uh, right. You were never in the company, in, but in you took... stage show because I got work as a writer. Right. So right. I moved to L.A. I was going to yeah. ask you, how did you become such close friends with Paul? I heard that at his memorial service that you were the last speaker that went on. That's true. We became good friends. We felt it felt like I had found a, a lost, a long lost brother. He was the sweetest, kindest, most generous, funniest. And a, a true artist. That vision, not just the character, which is one of the most unique and hysterical and I would say heartwarming characters ever created, but the entire world around him. Every single choice of a set design, of a project that he did, every element of that project would be so in line with his vision for a character in the world. You know, everybody went nuts over Barbie this summer, right? Right. That doesn't exist, that sensibility, without him. Look at the opening of that movie. Not the 2001 part, but when they were all saying good morning. It's right out of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. 
he was so smart in all the ways yeah. you just said. Such a great sensibility. Had gone too yeah. soon. I uh, I listened uh, to your podcast with him. I highly recommend uh, everybody oh, go listen to that. It was a great conversation with uh, one of the greats. Two things before I let you go. First, I want to just uh, bring up uh, Somebody Feed Phil, which is the great series you host on Netflix. How did it come about that you wanted to tour the world and try all these different types of food and and basically be you're almost like a comedic anthony bourdain it's the best way i could think to explain it you know how i sold the show i sold the show with one line what i'm exactly like anthony bourdain if he was afraid of everything (laughs) that's great what a great line (laughs) and i thought of the show because i would watch bourdain and go he's amazing i'm never doing that but maybe there's a show for a guy like me who loves to travel loves to eat but just also is uh, scared of of trying things outside his comfort zone. And maybe there's a show in that, uh, a show for everyone else who feels that way as well, who are on the couch and for them just getting off the couch is getting out of their comfort zone. <laughs> so the show, it pretends to be about food, but it's really about the the joy you can have in your life if, if you do take that baby step and go somewhere and travel (laughs) you know food is just the way in and my stupid sense of humor that's just the way in to get you to the real message that you know the world would be better if we all could experience a tiny bit of other people's experiences so i thought of this show when uh, nobody wanted my comedy scripts after raymond the business changed drastically uh it could be because that was the Raymond was the only show I could ever write, but it could also be that uh, they're stupid. <laughs> it's probably the latter, I would assume. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I would have I to imagine. Know. I mean, I think it's probably a combination of both. I have a lane. I'm good in that lane, and when I go here, here, maybe there's better people for that. Right. <laughs> right. It's fine. They all wanted, they said, we love you. Just do hip and edgy. I said, oh, you got the right guy. I'm Mr. Hip and edgy. <laughs> I love it. It's a great show. Highly recommend everybody check it out on Netflix. And all I can say is thank you so much for making the time on the Friars Club podcast. One final question. Why do you think the Friars Club continues to remain such a source of fascination for people after all these years in existence? Because people love the idea of it. They love that comedians have a club that they get together and do these roasts and even just get together for lunch at a club it's a very romantic notion and we want to keep it alive because we love comedy so much that's why well as somebody who grew up uh, watching everybody loves raymond and uh, just hearing uh, many of the words that you've penned for the show and uh, your contributions uh, to television and to comedy and now with somebody feed phil you've uh, been a great influence on my life so thank you for making the time for me today on the friars club podcast and hope our paths cross again soon phil it's a delight to talk so with you you take care thank you Thanks for listening to the Friars Club podcast. Please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. For more information on the Friars Club, please visit FriarsClub.com. We hope to see you there.